welcome to Consensus on Reality. We're here today to discuss a few astral topics from fairies to Mahatmas and beyond. This is the public portion of the episode, which uh, will be followed by an equally fascinating Patreon section of the episode, which you can access at patreon.com slash consensusunreality, where for $5 a month, you can access our entire archive of episodes and new Patreon exclusive episodes and other things. Yes, uh, big things upcoming too. We're super, super excited about a new aspect that we've kind of been teasing and I think we'll be ready to announce it maybe on the next episode um, that will be yeah. um, included in our $10 a month tier um, but it's going to be super worth it and amazing um, as Ben mentioned just $5 a month gets you access to all of our exclusive episodes and full episode archive tons of stuff on there that is not hosted on Spotify, YouTube, or Apple. It's only on Patreon, and you could use that RSS feed wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Um, one thing I was reminded of is our Saucers of Despair series of episodes that we did last fall, and um, this episode kind of fits neatly into that topic, topical region, I think. Do you agree, Ben? I do. Um what I've been realizing, uh, looking deeper into pre-UFO uh, theosophical and, uh, I guess, fairy lore, is just how similar they really are. Obviously, people like uh, Josh Kutchin have done this work in very deep ways, uh, especially in his ecology of souls. But it's kind of interesting going firsthand to see, you know, exactly what... Um, what kind of influence this uh, turn of the century, last century uh, milieu of like theosophists, anthropologists, like these sort of people investigating older religions um, as industrialization kind of reached its climax, I guess. Uh, we're seeing like this interesting look both backwards into the past of, of Western religion and culture and also a look eastward, obviously, and stuff like uh, theosophy and things like that. So, yeah, there's a lot to be said between between all these things. The the UFO as sort of an evolution of these older sort of land based or local kind of mythologies um, and. Theosophy, of course. Uh, I've been looking at the Mahatma letters to uh, AP Sinet, which are crazy um, and kind of a really big pivot point in the history of theosophy as well. Uh, uh, Blavatsky, H.B. Blavatsky, who with, uh, what's his name? Olcott. I don't remember his first initials, though, but um, the founders of theosophy, they kind of were accused of fraud along with every other kind of spiritualist and Blavatsky was interesting in that she 
admitted to fraud to a certain extent and said that, well, sometimes you have to fake things in order to like get the ball rolling on these <laughs> spiritual endeavors. Um, yeah, it's such a big part of the topics we talk about too, right? And that came up a lot yeah, in the, it's crazy. the it spiritualism conversation. Yeah, it was, but it was happening all the way through. Um, and then, of course, the Mahatma letters were also accused of being sort of a Blavatsky fraud. Um, and they, they're they weird. I watched a quick little Theosophical Society documentary about the sort of history of of the letters and their role in the in the foundation and i guess like they had this sort of not a scientist but they had a scholar of, of like handwriting or someone like that look at the letters and the theosophical position is that they kind of like uh apported onto the page like they kind of like the ink kind of like grew out of the page or like when there was a mistake it was like lifted spiritually off the page and then written over again, creating this weird like palimpsest kind of look to some of the letters. And of course, like skeptics are like, no, it's obviously just like somebody like messing with their handwriting and writing like these letters. But the content of the letters are pretty interesting too. Huge for the kind of stuff that Space Brothers would say to people, very similar to sort of absolute unity, like reincarnation type stuff. So, you know, they were influential on theosophy, of course. But it's interesting, like looking now at how they might have influenced stuff that like Adamski or some of the other early contactees were hearing from these people. Um, so they were from Kut Humi, often referred to as KH and Moria. Uh, often just M. And I guess Kut Humi and Moria were extremely tall, very tall Hindu fellas. And um, these are like ascended masters now. Yeah. And that's another really sort of interesting part about that theosophical stuff is that we're really to assume that they are to some extent physical people. Like these are people somewhere but they have this aspect of them where they've kind of mastered the cycle of reincarnation and are able to kind of, yeah. I mean, I guess that's why they call them, you know, masters. They're sort of above, but also inside of the world. Um, and that's a really interesting aspect of all of this. And it all kind of started because Blavatsky met with AP Sinet in India, where he was kind of stationed for a job, uh, for like a colonial newspaper and the Blavatsky stayed with the Senate, him and his wife, and he kind of converted to the theosophy. And he said, can I write a letter to one of these masters of yours? And she said, sure, you know, and I'll, I'll deliver it to them. And then this correspondence began, which sort of forms the basis of all this. Mm. So it's kind of been really interesting looking into the, this chapter in the theosophical story because it's important and people talk about it, but it doesn't often get included in like looking at the scope of like Blavatsky and then it getting passed on to Ledbetter and uh, Bizant, Bizant, yeah. Bizant, uh and stuff like that, like the American branch um, and like Judge and some of the other post Blavatsky theosophists. Uh, so yeah, it's a kind of a weird chapter that's 
sort of marginal, but also central. So yeah, that's been wild, wild stuff. Mm, yeah, that's that's funny. You've been looking at that. Was that because I I talked about the uh, lead better with you a little bit, or were you just kind of independently looking at that? It stuff? just came into the it came into the shop. Like I got a big, you know, a couple of crates of of books uh, that I bought. Someone brought them in, you know, kind of dusty old stuff. And one of them was just this really nice seventies edition of the Mahatma letters. And I'd never like wanted to like spring to buy it myself. So I thought, well, I'll just keep this copy for me. And mm. so, yeah, kind of serendipitously arrived. And yeah, you mentioned looking at some of the theosophical stuff and that kind of, I was like, you know, maybe it's a good time to just read it or at least try. Yeah. Yeah, and we've we've talked about um Besson and Ledbetter. Um I forget the specifics of when, although I'm sure we've mentioned them on a couple episodes. Um probably thought forms. Thought forms for sure. Um but yeah, re- I I was listening to an audiobook of um Theosophical Manual number five, uh The Astral Plane. It's scenery, inhabitants, and phenomena from 1896 by Charles Webster Ledbetter. Um, it's a really, uh, it's obviously very relative to the kind of topics that we've been talking about lately, especially um, contextualizing the UFO question, um, the UFO as a religious object. Um, but certainly the UFO, um, as representing or being instrumental towards man's evolution, I think is something that's really seems to almost be derived from this, this book. Um, not that it, it it starts there, but he does, uh, conceptualize this in an early way. And I'm sure that Jung must have been um, influenced by this kind of stuff as well um, because there's some of the the descriptions of the astral plane and its inhabitants um, really seems to be related to the kind of things that Jung was looking at later in his life uh, specifically that concept of the psychoidal which we spoke about on a recent episode um, but there's also, yeah, I wonder if you read, if you read theosophical literature, is there anything on like Jung's relationship to, to that kind of stuff? I mean, obviously, uh, it was popular in Germany to some extent, or at least the Ariosophic branch of it was, was popular. And so I wonder, yeah, if there was, I, I assume he must I, have, I have absolutely of, no doubt. And I'm, sh- I yeah. feel that I've, I don't want to say with certainty, but I do feel that I've read things um that would indicate that he has read a good deal of theosophical literature um yeah but they yeah there's really there's it's a very like the language of this book is i really enjoyed how direct it is um and that it is like it's a it's a manual you know so it's written as kind of this like survey Mm. of the astral and um yeah the language is is quite plain and direct um, but there are things, statements in there that 
really seem prophetic of the kind of um, conversations that we're currently having about non-human intelligence and the possibility of this other sentience, this independent um, sentient consciousness that has been with us um, since the inception of our own consciousness, right? Or, or, or civilization yeah. or something along those lines. Um, but yeah, there's, it, it really conjures ideas that Strieber is talking about um, with the contact with the greys um, as being or having to do with mankind's evolution. This is something that Ledbetter yeah. talks about in this manual. Um, as this, the elemental essence as belonging to man's evolution. Um, and that the evolution of the astral will show emanations in the mineral or the material. So there's kind of this, hmm. uh, trismegistus like as above, so below, um, uh, you know, um, concourse between these two planes and and not that there's just two um in an in a gnostic type sense there's it goes further and further up from the astral you know so the astral yeah. is kind of like a exists as a sort of filter into the material um and this is also something i encountered um in alkindi's treatise on stellar rays which is um Alkindi was like the father of Arab philosophy. Um, this specific treatise really uh, was influential to John Dee. That's kind of how I encountered it. Um, Alkindi was born in 801 AD. So this is going quite a ways back before Ledbetter. But there's also this idea that, you know, stellar rays are the agent responsible for all causation within the universe. And they come from the plane of the divine. Um, and then they, they affect and emanate in elements of the material world, which is something that we can expand upon. But there is always this concept of light and energy. Um, and, and I feel like this top down from, you know, alien-like encounters, um, astral light encounters, um, but also in the the fairy encounters too, there's always a relationship to light and um, emanating yeah. through light, right? At least often, I think there's this really interesting interview uh, in the fairy faith in Celtic countries, uh, which maybe we can talk a bit about now, um, where he's talking to like an Irish mystic and he describes. I'm not sure if he gives the name of who the mystic was, but this mystic who he's interviewing describes like these fairy entities are of like two classes, some of which are shining beings and the others are opalescent. Mm, mm -hmm. And so they're both like, they have this quality of light, which describes them um, along with a kind of interesting idea that you don't see them with your physical eyes. You kind of, it's a different sort of sight with which you see them and sight comes up a lot in this book, which I found really interesting. Um, Cause I had not read this before and 
I've been kind of looking through the book and also listening to the audio book, which is very calming and very like yeah. pleasant to listen it's, to. It is great. But yeah. it's like, yeah, it's soothing stuff. But and then I looked into it. And so it's written by Walter Evans Wentz, who I have confused with uh, something Evans Pritchard, who is a anthropologist type historian guy uh, who's British. But so the audio book's read in sort of like a, a sort of. English Isles accent of some sort. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but, and then, but Evans Wentz is from Trenton, New Jersey, which is hilarious to me. Um, and he, so he, he has a, traveling. I'm just kind of remembering now, actually, this is a funny coincidence, yeah. but he has a deep relationship to theosophy, right? And he is, he is a, the, he was a theosophist. Yeah. Like, it happened and that you can kind of see that in this book you see his relationship that's like developing with theosophy kind of come into how he interprets it's he almost takes like a kind of it's antiquated now but like a psychical approach to the fairy thing he calls it like a psychological approach um so it's almost like this weird cross between like anthropological work like field work and theosophical leaning psychical research it's really a kind of beautiful book but some of this thing keeps coming up where you can only see fairies with one eye mm-hmm. which I, is like struck me as really interesting i guess it was mostly in ireland where he found this but yeah the fairy would like ask which eye you can see me out of he would ask the witness that and when he found out which one it was he would then disappear like <laughs> you'd close one eye and there would the, the fairy wouldn't be there and you'd open the other and he would and all these little details about the fairy encounters um we kind of talked about it when we did that episode with mike bruno like a few years ago and we we looked at some of those eddie lenahan uh stories about fairies this feels similar to that in some ways like mm-hmm. and of course robert kirk which he also mentions yeah. and kind of re retraces yeah. some of the um the area in which robert kirk lived and and died yeah and vanished into the fairy realm mm-hmm. i guess mm-hmm. um yeah it's it's great and he kind of covers he covers ireland first and then scotland and then uh wales cornwall and like all of these places and it's really interesting how often people refer to fairies as like really having a lot to do with people who are dead or like people who died, but who have still time on earth. So there's a way more of like a ghost presence, um, which again, kind of evokes uh, the research Josh Cutchin is doing in his work. Uh, This idea that the dead are inextricably linked to both fairy and UFO encounters Passport, and passport to Magonia as well, obviously. Yeah. That, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the more I look at the fairy stuff, you know, when I dip back into it every now and then, that really does seem like the best interpretation of what is happening with UFOs. It explains the most. Not that we know what fairies are, like, so it doesn't really explain anything. But the similarities there are so striking and weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh 
I mean, I, I feel comfortable jumping around a bunch because we'll, we'll be able to to backtrack into some of that theosophical stuff. But an interesting thing is, um, in fairy lore, there is like fairy artifacts, right? Like a a little shoe yeah. or um, things of that nature that are kind of um, up, apported right into existence from this. Um, para realm um and listening to diana pasolka on joe rogan um oh yeah this week um that's crazy i feel it is crazy um and obviously we've talked about you know the the two pasolka books a lot on the show because they're kind of at this inflection point of um all of these things um, but there, which she's talking about a lot with David Grush and these quote unquote crash sites is that they're actually like what the invisible college would refer to these is actually donations. So it's not necessarily okay. the idea that these, um, these goofy aliens crashed their ship in, in New Mexico. And here we are totally. going through the pieces. It's really more the idea that these things are kind of seeded like these, these technological abstract objects are seeded into our material world. And we're kind of left to decipher them. And yeah, a really interesting uh, revelation in listening to that Pasolka interview was that an industry term for, these metamaterials, um, which are like these engineered um, metals that that have properties that are not like earthly and kind of have like all of these technological implications of being like, you know, superconductors. And um, we're, we're, we're kind of literally uh, reverse engineering some of these donations these metamaterials and the only way that we can begin to try and construct some of these things is like in a state of zero gravity which is really weird i mean but that's what when grush said we we have biologics it's such an odd term because you think like that means we have bodies of aliens but it really is referring yeah. to these like uh, anomalous materials um it seems like a cagey industry term to to do that in the first place yeah. right it always yeah struck me that way maybe it's like an alien's tooth or something or like yeah the kind of thing a fairy might leave behind like a you know a clip of hair or something weird like that it's, yeah um but i, I guess I, I bring that up also because you know listening to this audio of uh the evans wentz fairy faith book um one thing to point out is that with fairy encounters there there's usually um a standoffishness towards mankind and when there is an interaction um it's usually outright trickery um yeah I, like i don't really hear or i'm not sure i've heard encounters where the fairies seem to be like assisting um the progress of of mankind in any way which is 
which is the conversation yeah. of this this UFO donation type thing. They're kind of like fickle. Like they'll help individual people if they do them a favor. Like they they reward proper like uh, you know ritual acknowledgement. They reward that. They reward if you leave a bit of milk behind for them, or if you steer clear of of their property, um, or if you like, uh, there's they'll often need like somebody to play a certain instrument for their band or something right, like that right. kind of thing. Like, and then like they take somebody's hump off of their back, like this crazy like they do these sort of strange, otherworldly things to people that I guess are not that different from the kinds of things that. Uh, aliens will do as well as the kind of like curses that the aliens will put upon people like the invasions of the body uh the weird radiation type sickness people get after seeing a ufo all of that stuff seems very fairy punishment or reward type behavior and so yeah i wonder if that if that really tracks with where the ufo conversation is today it seems like it at least could um with the abduction strange thing in the for sure yeah 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 uh yes and the vehicles thing is strange because there are like fairy vehicles but i guess i mean i guess that could just be a case of the thing changing with our understanding of space and time it wouldn't really make sense for like a marching gang of fairies to appear to us today because you know that's not the way people move anymore exactly like people move in craft of various sorts almost exclusively um well not exclusively but you know what i mean like yeah something else in the in the wentz evans wentz book i thought was interesting was how often the the fairies have these like battles um how often people report overhearing like swords and like battles and huge armies clashing like on beaches and then there's like no evidence of it later, like these crazy ghostly battles. I, and that's something I don't really know. I mean, is it possible that the kind of UFO crashes that we see are just like the result of something that we is not involved with us at all? Like, you know, it has nothing to do with us. And we just happen to sometimes be able to see the the physical remnants of it, I guess. Mm hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It seems people aren't quite you know, it doesn't even seem this way. It's it's it is that people haven't been willing to disclose um direct information about the quote unquote crash sites, but Pasolka in this in this interview this week um she's reiterating that, you know, from like the 1940s there is like three sites of these kind of donations containing these materials and it is um uh it does go with some of the stuff in the corso book about that material that, that was supposedly recovered at roswell that the metal can that can retain yeah. it's like it's it's shape once it is like um reformed or something you know like it has that reflexive property um and like fiber optics where it's supposed to have gotten like yeah all the stuff that uh corzo claims we received from that crash yeah corzo is a fascinating figure still to me i 
I am not really like settled on him. Most people kind of accept he's some sort of psyop or hoaxer or whatever, but I am not really sure about him at all. <laughs> he's a strange, strange like example in this field, I think. Yeah. And admittedly, like when it comes to the, you know, the, the more nuts and bolts, like recovery of objects, although I'm not sure how nuts and bolts it is. Like I said, like the, the whole donations thing seems to, um, work with the UFO as, as interdimensional apport kind of theory that we've been talking about. Um, yeah. but yeah, I don't necessarily have a clear opinion on it because there's convincing information from, from so many sides of the, uh, the, um, the kaleidoscopic object of ufology, but yeah. I, I would say the whole, I don't know, the conspiratorial angle of it all being, um, you know, that mirror man psyop seems less convincing at this time that it does feel that there is, I don't know, there is something like, it's not, not to just say, Oh, there's something going on. Cause yes, obviously there's something that's been going on forever, but like, even the kind yeah. of the, the metamaterials and stuff, I don't know. It's like it, it, there's pretty open conversations going on about these things and not knowing where they came from, but that they seem to be clearly engineered and engineered beyond our, you know, capabilities and scientific knowledge. Um, it's not that this is just like hearsay. Like there's, you know, you could watch like seminars of people like talking about what these objects are and what the implications of them are and stuff um so yeah. i don't know yeah I it's, mean, it's strange what would it mean if they're if they're interdimensional though i don't i mean it falls apart for me there because it often doesn't seem like people really know what that means like they, they use that as a phrase to like refer to something but what, like what is an interdimensional object like that doesn't make any sense you can't if it's like we wouldn't be able to experience an interdimensional object in a recognizable way. I don't, I mean, I don't think we could because we exist in the three dimensions. And I guess if time is the fourth, we exist in this changing, decaying three dimensional experience. So what would a fifth dimensional object even 5d like, consciousness? How, how We're hitting it. <laughs> how could it land? 5D in awareness, desert? bro. Like, We're lifted. Because, like, wouldn't that mean it's outside of time? And if it's outside of time, then it would be, like, the object would be, would always be here at this, in the same place throughout all of time, and we wouldn't be able to interact with it. Yeah. Or is that, I mean, obviously, I'm not, like, a scientist or a theoretical physicist, but if that's, well, that if I, that's I, what. I hate to get, we're getting Rogan minutes on here. We're not even an hour in. I would say Rogan hours, but we're, like, 30 <laughs> in. But, like, I mean, that kind of also. It has it, weirdly, uh, you can look at it with the whole quantum physics thing of like, you know, things are different under with the tools that you're observing them. So, you know, if, if sure. consciousness is the tool in that, then maybe we've just been able to observe them at this point or something or under, I don't know. Um, yeah, like one aspect of it. But there's, isn't there like that? There's that famous Sagan thing where he's talking about like higher dimensional objects, and it's we're kind of existing on this flat plane. The time is a flat circle yeah. thing. And, I mean, we we wouldn't yeah, be, be able land. to perceive like the yeah yeah. 
Right. Um, yeah, that was illustrated well in that that early novel, science fiction ish novel, Flatland. But mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's cool. We got so the dimensional 5D thing in so early, though. <laughs> the dimensional thing is like, what is how is that term being used? Because there's like a popular connotation of what a what you know multi-dimensional reality is what dimensions are which is kind of uh poisoned by our media like star trek type stuff like the character q or you mm -hmm. know like someone who can blip in and out of reality you know at will and but that in practice i don't know if you're looking at everything really practically it does all kind of feel like science fiction based very very much on whatever happened with like the mid 20th century star trek puharich matrix thing <laughs> like this the nine it all feels like a kind of just this narrative was born um and then you know 1947 all this stuff kind of was birthed in this weird universe explosion like a big bang of of narrative where we get all of this at the same we time of course, like, that's not true because you yeah. can trace it back further. But yeah, yeah, I mean, like this Ledbetter text, uh, the astral plane. One of the most like glaring things that was just sitting there is like um, he's talking about the non-human inhabitants of the astral plane, um, and he he talks about the winged globes, the fiery wheels of Ezekiel. Um, and he's saying that they are the four points of the compass. Uh, they are represented by the solar disk, the encircled cross, um, and they are the agents of man's karma. Uh, they hmm. were always held as protectors of mankind and play a great part in man's destiny. This is 1896. Yeah, that's interesting. It's crazy. There's not a whiff of ufology yet. You know, the only thing there is at that yeah. point is the airships thing um yeah that's cool it's I, wild. I mean that's kind of what i mean by it, it like it stretches back but it's kind of like it gets this new identity with with the dawn of the ufo moment um and that the rise of sci-fi and the rise of whatever these objects are seeing them uh really colors our understanding of, of reality. I guess this is kind of getting into the territory of thinking them as thinking of them as uh, in the valet sense, like a control system, but also in the uh, like Jason Horsley sense, like a social psychological weapon that is used to direct our understanding of reality and the self both might be true or neither, but just the way that this looks in our culture and the way that it functions. It's interesting. Yeah. To trace it back from the theosophical stuff like masters and these sort of the astral plane thought forms through the sort of cultural transformation it, it experiences uh, by the time we get to now where you can't really think of UFOs without thinking of the media that inspired it when really it's like this strange mystical 
um yeah I, mystical what like a, a mystical initiatory like symbolic experience that is what it most really resembles if you look at the actual experiences people have but then the thing that happens in culture with it is this sort of narrative poisoning uh mm -hmm. which is really interesting but of course i you know i'm a big fan of the narrative i love the the subculture of it so it's not a complaint as much as a interesting to track yeah how well, it gets from yeah. from astral plane thought forms to you can't think of someone coming from another planet without thinking of the gray alien face and how that ties into Crowley is of course interesting. And I've seen that going around a little bit lately, like lamb stuff. People have been bringing lamb back on Twitter, hmm. which I guess will age this conversation pretty quickly, but <laughs> the way lamb comes back as like, Oh, this is, you know, gray aliens were invented by Aleister Crowley, who is the most evil man that ever like this very <laughs> naive understanding of Crowley, or I guess it's like that, people would invoke that bell curve where it's like uh, a stupid person thinks Crowley is evil and like a middle tier person thinks that it's actually more nuanced than that. And then the super smart thinks person thinks, Oh, Crowley yeah. is evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm sure that's an easy response, but I think that that's also wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, I agree with you. I think like the, those nefarious human aspects of the, of the whole thing obviously exist and are a part of it um and the narrative function uh is is kind of how we try and understand it but it, it is fault it's it almost like doesn't just confuse it um i think it it kind of, like it's the healthiest way to look at it is that kind of psychoidal concept in that ufology belongs to the family of visionary experiences and then it kind of yeah. you know it, it gets transformed into an archetype um and that's kind of the conversation of so many of these things we look at and so many of the things that we've we're looking at just for this episode you know like they they talk right, about it's true of fairies too exactly fairies but also even dealing with the astral um Ledbetter's talking so much about how the temporary forms that astral beings take um, and how they kind of take shape. And even if you think about Ezekiel uh, trying to um, characterize the visionary experience that he had, but we are left with these drawings of, of winged angels with the the faces of the the four cherubim and you know the wheels with the eyes on yeah. it and stuff and it's it seems to be that maybe putting a face to it at all <laughs> kind of um torpedoes what the thing actually is um yeah and that maybe the story that we tell about the thing doesn't really have to do with the thing at all does that make sense you know that like totally yeah or or it is the thing too and, and like that's what they want to evoke out of people is is a new story or like a 
iteration of the same story every time. It could just be a amorphous thing that interacts with us that wants us to like invent new stories for it or something. Yeah, I I feel I do feel that we put human stories to something that is um not human and in a way that we can't quite understand obviously what exactly it is but that we yeah. we almost we we add these absurd stories to it um that then denigrate the narrative or create this narrative that denigrates the the pure essential thing itself um in that it's probably more of an experiential thing um but then it goes back to that whole donations thing. And I don't, there can be many separate aspects of it, like existing yeah, at, at right. one time, obviously, too. You know, and it might be some comical thing that the fairies are like, well, we don't know what the hell the aliens are either. You know? Yeah. Um, That's true. It could all be, I mean, yeah, everything's so complicated. It could all just have nothing to do with one another. But yeah. So, but Ledbetter talks a lot about the, this idea of the elemental, um, the elemental being this latent force, um, that is essential to mankind's being in that we, we were once elemental and that the elemental that projects from the astral plane, um, it reflects itself through light. And that's kind of the image that we're seeing. And yeah, that definitely reminds me of that, the Jungian stuff we were talking about, I forget if it was last week or the episode before that, but you know, yeah. the, the concept that the, the archetype that we project onto the, the visionary experience is, is not the thing itself, but yeah. Right. Yeah. I wonder, um, I lost my train of thought, but, uh, yeah, the, the astral stuff, um, how that, I wonder how influenced like someone like Ledbetter was by uh, like the sort of folklore of, of his like place, you know, like how obviously like Blavatsky sort of was a synthesizer of, of different religions mm -hmm. uh, and different philosophies and an inventor to some extent too. Uh, and so the sort of less major uh, characters in theosophy, you wonder what they bring to it individually. Like, of course, there's like astral stuff in the more original theosophists, but yeah, like the 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 thought form stuff and this sort of appeal to a more amorphous kind of like psychic approach to theosophy, I thought was interesting and. In, what they did like in in that american chapter with bezant and ledbetter you wonder you know every sort of cult or religion or group will change as it goes through its members so you, you wonder what where they are today i guess we could just ask like a member of the theosophical society but mm. i guess what i'm saying it's is it's, it's interesting i mean i was looking into because i know philadelphia had a theosophical yeah. society for the longest time although it seems to have fragmented a bit i'm sure it had a lot of older members and stuff um and the new york one i don't know seems to have, have faded a bit too um correct me if i'm wrong but i was kind of looking into this stuff and 
um, some of the regional Rosicrucian stuff too, which we could we'll talk about on the the Patreon. Um, yeah. But yeah, one of the funny things I encountered in this Ledbetter book too, and talking about you know how this like I felt how prophetic this text was, or at least influential. Um, he talks about how these accidental acts of ceremonial magic can conjure beings who should not know of humanity and humanity should not know of them. <laughs> that feels like super yeah. Lovecraftian, right? And and That's so dark. Although we can um, speculate how much Jung read of theosophy, we know for a fact that Lovecraft was reading yeah. you know, as much theosophical literature as he could. I assume Grant probably took a little bit out of there, oh, either right. through Absolutely. Lovecraft or, yeah. or just I'm sure he just had all these books. Um, so let's let's yeah, peel I love over. That. That's so dark. Yeah, let's Maybe peel over to the uh, uh, Patreon and we'll talk more about this stuff. And we'll do an opposite Wizard of Oz where we push the curtain back over. Put the curtain back on. Yeah. Close the curtain. Uh, we, Close the curtain. Yeah. Yeah. Go go back in front of the curtain. I don't know. I was just thinking that though. Like it how we've for the past three episodes we've kind of been um really like extracting the kind of or trying to at least, you know, consider the essence of the ufologic um how do you go back to uh you know the paperbacks of, of uh space bros and 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 little green men i I like it yeah i do too (laughs) yeah i can go back anytime but it's it's a lot more like uh entertainment than it is like blowing your mind which is fine that's that's what you need sometimes yeah yeah for sure can you put the uh toothpaste back in the tube i guess is the question i guess if you yeah if, if you forget about the toothpaste long enough and it dries out you can then sort of siphon the powder of the dried toothpaste back into the tube. You could. There's probably some kind of tool, you, you know. <laughs> shoot. Anyway, Patreon.com/slash/consensusunreality yeah. <laughs> uh, for just five dollars a month, get access to our entire archive of episodes, uh, exclusive written content, um, tons of exclusive episodes. Um, bonus hours on episodes a dis- the discord discord server um and as we <laughs> mentioned at the top uh we're going to be introducing some things that we're super super excited about so join up you know five bucks a month i just spent that on a cup of regular ass coffee this morning um because i was it's dark out there i was in a rush and i it was like five bucks so If you like what we do, throw that our way. (laughs) And thanks for listening, and we'll hop over to the Patreon. Okay, we're on Patreon. Patreon, listeners. Uh, Thanks for joining us, or for staying so, how about that new season of True Detective? No, not yet. Let's do that on the way, way back. I'm so close to saying True Anon every time I say True Detective. <laughs> and it's one of these days it's going to kill me. Um, it's really, really bad.
I'm fine. Uh, I just got uh, pretty cool. This episode about. is continued exclusively on patreon.com slash consensus unreality. Sign up now for tons of exclusive episodes, full archive, written content, Discord server, and more.